Hi, this is Fraser Hines, uh, Jamie McCrimmon from Doctor Who, and you're listening to Nerdology. Hi, this is Mark, and you're listening to episode 20 of Nerdology, sponsored by CSO, the cult fanzine. And my guest today is Mr. Eric Stadnick. Hello. Hey, Eric. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you uh, so much for having me on for a third time. Yes, that's got to be a record now, I think. Well, three times in 20 episodes starts to become like a bit of a <laughs> pattern. <laughs> so, uh, the subject for today's chat, would you like to... Reveal it to the folks? Uh, sure, it's not terribly dramatic. Maybe you should insert some drum roll or mysterious music. It is, uh, Mark asked me to want to come on again, and if so, what I'd want to talk about. And given that uh, in the UK this weekend, the weekend of recording, and last weekend saw the release of the newest film adaptation of The Great Gatsby, and that that novel is one of my favorites ever written anywhere in the history of the universe, pretty much, I thought, you know, let's do, let's do a Gatsby discussion. I think it's, you know, no one's really talking about it. It's really flying under the radar. So, <laughs> you know, someone needs to call attention to this little-known work and this tiny movie that has no stars and no budget. <laughs> yeah, well, you got to feel sorry for them, you know. <laughs> who's, who's this DiCaprio guy? I, I've heard of him from somewhere. I, I think he might be vaguely. Italian. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I think he could be right. Okay, so we're going to do a little comparison yes. uh, between F. Scott Fitzgerald's 1925 novel and Baz Luhrmann's interpretation of said novel. Yes. Now, I'm pretty new to this. I've literally just finished the novel about half an hour before we were due to record. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I know this is a story that's very close to your heart, Eric, and you, yeah. it's something you've enjoyed for many years. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I thought was quite striking about the movie, uh, I think it's a, a Baz Luhrmann sort of um how would you describe it one of his um visual tricks is to just throw everything at the screen yes and it's a very sort of primary colors everything's literally coming out of the screen at you because it's in 3d as well not entirely sure whether it was really needed to be in 3d what do you think on the, on the 3d side of things i you know I, I went with friends when i went to see it and they were all fervently of the anti-3d camp and mm -hmm. Having seen it in 2D, you could tell what moments the 3D would be perhaps yeah. noticed. Um, but like every other movie I've seen in 3D, I still don't get why. Mm. It's it's um, 
it's like it's one of those things that with the exception of very few moments here and there and a very few filmmakers it's just adding a layer of depth that really doesn't do anything more than slightly make you notice the visuals in a way that you're not. And I think part of it comes down to, and this is an inherent tension that the movie kind of plays with and I think ultimately fails or succeeds in some ways, depending on how you feel about it. Uh, there's a long, long debate about exactly the balance between how much film is a narrative medium and how much is a visual medium. Mm-hmm. And this movie goes heavy on the visual side of things for long stretches of it. And some people... Yeah. And the 3D fits into that. And I think some people who respond very well to the Baz Luhrmann throw everything at the screen sort of technique of uh, visual, you know, scene framing mm-hmm. will respond well to this movie. And people who I think wanted the book might have a different reaction to varying degrees depending on how much of the, the visual nonsense they can deal with. Now, I get the impression you fall very much into the latter camp. I fall very much into the. I, I'm trying to forge my own camp. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to do here because I, well, I, I enjoyed the movie. I I will not pretend I didn't like the movie. And there are even times when the movie resonated with me in the same way the book does. Mm-hmm. But by and large, I thought it was the same story being told by a different storyteller. Mm-hmm. And so, um. And so the best the best analogy I could come up with is actually one from the movie. There's a moment in the movie, because Baz Luhrmann is Baz Luhrmann. He used a lot of contemporary music, so there's Jay-Z and yeah. all this sort of stuff. And there's mm-hmm. But there's one moment where he does something quite clever, actually, I thought, which is there's a sort of 20s jazz age version of Beyonce's Crazy in Love. Yeah. And that's what this struck me as, that the same process that leads you to do a sort of 20s riff on a song where it's still recognizing the same song but also recognizably a different thing mm-hmm. is what this movie is. It's let's take this story, do a variation on a theme, kind of change the key, rearrange some of the things, and present it as our own thing where it's still clearly Gatsby, but at the same time it is still clearly a new thing that stands on its own and can rise and fall on its own. Mm-hmm. It's very much a tale of the American dream gone bad, really, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose. I suppose should we because you know, you have British listeners, and Gatsby is not read there the way it is in America, where it's kind of like one of those books that almost every American high school student has to read as part of their mm-hmm. education. Uh, so, should we do a very basic plot synopsis? Yeah, go for it. Um, conveniently, it's a very short book, and the plot is very, very simple. Um, there's a narrator whose name is Nick Carraway. He's come to New York in 1922, the summer of 1922, from the Midwest, mm-hmm. um, probably Minnesota, something like that. And he has a cousin who's who, and he lives on Long Island Sound, which is a suburban New York neighborhood. And he lives mm-hmm. essentially in a tiny cottage surrounded by great houses, and that's a recurring sort of image almost. And across the sound from him on another small island lives his cousin Daisy and her husband Tom. And they're unbelievably wealthy, just rolling around in money kind of people. <laughs> and by chance for Nick, not by chance for Gatsby, but by chance for Nick, his neighbor is this man named Jay Gatsby, who seems to be a bit of a mystery about where his yeah. money comes from. But he's, he's also very wealthy and throws these lavish parties. And it, t- it turns out you find out that 
Gatsby has been in love with Daisy for five years. Um, and that's the thing. It's like people, I think, often forget that it was only just before the war, which in this country was 1917 only. Yeah. Because we got involved in World War One very late. Mm-hmm. That Gatsby met Daisy and that she was quite young and he was already late 20s. Um, so he met Daisy. They fell in love. They courted. He went off to war. She couldn't wait. She ended up marrying Tom, who was very wealthy. And he came back and essentially made it his goal in life to try to impress Daisy and win her. Because uh, Gatsby had been poor and he thought, if I get super rich, then Daisy will love me. This is set in the early 20s. I think it's 22, is it? Yeah, something? summer of 1922. So Yeah, so at that point, that was the height of uh, the stock exchange really yes, which taking the mo- off. Yes, which the movie makes a lot of in a way that the book doesn't because the book mm. ne- couldn't necessarily see what was going to come in 1929, whereas the movie no. does know it's coming in 1929 mm-hmm. with the crash and the depression, which is uh, rather funny, actually. Mm. Um, so, the you know, and that takes you up to about halfway point where Nick becomes sort of embroiled in an attempt to, by on Gatsby's part, to win Daisy away from Tom. And then it becomes a question of whether or not Daisy will leave Tom for Gatsby. Um, and if so, under what conditions? And it's, it ends, some would say tragically. It certainly ends badly for mm-hmm. Gatsby, um, less so for Daisy and Tom. Actually, that's kind of the point of the book in some ways. Nick kind of then retreats away back to the Midwest after Gatsby is killed in the end. And a few other fairly innocent bystanders also get killed. Um, And the book is in a lot of ways summed up in the final few pages. One description of which is sort of Nick talking about Tom and Daisy, these incredibly wealthy people who are just live careless lives and they go about smashing into things and destroying them and then retreat behind their vast sums of money or their great carelessness or whatever. And they just don't care. Yeah. And that's kind of, it's like the rich are different from you and me. These people are so rich that they can just go about and destroy things and then go about living their lives and not really give it a second thought. Whereas it's quite an interesting look at the social structure of America. Yeah, it, it is. It's really funny because it's a very class conscious book, which is funny because we America supposedly is a great cat classless society. Mm. Um, but yet a lot of our really great literature is inherently about class, which is very amusing. Um, links that people will go to to climb the ladder. To climb the ladder. It's, and that's the thing is we think Gatsby, in a way, in some ways, Gatsby's fundamentally dumb about how class structure works. He thinks mm-hmm. that if he becomes rich, he'll be accepted by the people who are always born rich. And he's not. He's just not. He's viewed suspiciously by the people who are born wealthy. They're more than willing to use him, it turns out, that Gatsby made his money in bootlegging and other illegal activities, mm-hmm. which fund and give life to the otherwise dull existences of the, you know, the old moneyed you know, Buchanans of the world. Yeah. But in the end, they still view him as essentially nouveau riche. And they can't be bothered to deal with him. And no one actually cares about him, which he, which we find out in the end when he dies. No one hardly comes to his funeral. All these hundreds of people who came to his parties and drank his liquor and ate his food mm. and danced to his music just can't be bothered. So Gatsby buys this enormous mansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, which looks out across uh, a lake, is it? 
It's a sound. It's um, yeah. Yeah, it's a sound. Long Island is a Long Island, and uh, <laughs> and there are two kind of smaller islands. Picture eggs. Yeah, uh, West East, Egg and East West Egg, egg and East Egg, and uh, Gatsby and Nick's house is on West Egg, and then across the sound, not very far across even, is mm-hmm. East Egg, which is where all the old money houses are. And from his house, he can see uh, Daisy's house mm-hmm. on East Egg. Um, so it's you could kind of see the split between the the sort of poorer guys trying to make good on one side, and then the established kind of rich families on the other side. Yeah, no, definitely, and and the you know the the image that the movie goes back to again and again, but the book only actually deals with a few times. What everyone remembers when they read the book is the image of the green light at the end of Daisy and Tom's dock that mm. Gatsby looks at and kind of reaches out towards and of course the green light you know green light means go green light is money green light is envy and jealousy it's very much a metaphor rather than it's, necessarily yeah yeah it could be a metaphorical yeah. green light but in fact it's an actual literal green light in the book which some people feel is a bit heavy handed um, the symbolism in the book is not necessarily subtle yeah the um, I found the established kind of rich characters weren't particularly nice people you couldn't really sympathize with them a great deal mm-hmm. you've got tom who within a few pages you get the impression is uh, pretty hardline racial views which i guess for the time might have been acceptable but certainly with modern eyes it's makes for a pretty grim reading um you've got daisy who initially comes out quite sympathetic um because you've got this kind of story in the background that she kind of fell in love with Gatsby and then it all went a bit pear-shaped when the war happened and she held on and held on and held on and then he couldn't make it back to her so she ended up marrying some guy that it would seem she didn't really love so by the end you kind of get this impression that she's just as shallow as he is really uh, and then you've also got the the character of the the uh, pro golfer who's a kind of introduces her character yeah yeah she's kind of like a love interest for nick isn't she yeah jordan jordan baker um, yeah who's who actually is kind of heavily underutilized in the film um her role is much larger in the book because she yeah, and nick have this actual romance over the course of the summer Mm-hmm. Um, whereas it's kind of just hinted at in the movie, it was I guess I guess they decided even at two and a half hours and adapting a hundred and fifty page novella, essentially Gatsby barely mm-hmm. qualified as a novel in length. Um, I guess they figured they couldn't get everything in, and so the thing Lerman decided to cut was the romance between Nick and Jordan by and large, which is much mm-hmm. more fully explored in the book. And yeah. she's a much more interesting character in the book. Um, Lerman, in many ways, made a much simpler movie thematically than the book is. Hmm. The book is, while slight, and I think some people admire its prose but think it's actually kind of overly simplistic, I think it's actually quite subtle and very difficult to pin down exactly what it's about and what its stance is on many issues. And Jordan is a good example of that because Mm -hmm. in some ways she's very sympathetic 
she's very charming and she seemed to genuinely like and appreciate Nick. Yeah. And and the fact that Nick's fundamentally perhaps a good person in a way that most people around her aren't. But she's also fundamentally dishonest herself. And I think that's that's more apparent in the book, I think. It's not even hinted at really in the movie. It's, yeah. It's you know, it's uh and to the point where there's a great moment of irony in the book where because Gatsby enlists Jordan's help in getting Nick to kind of put Gatsby in touch with Daisy. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, it was so funny. I was watching it, and Gats- they have the line that Gatsby utters in the book where it says, well, you know, Jordan's a professional golfer. They live on honor or whatever. You can trust her. She's, you know. Mm-hmm. In the book, we already know she's a cheater at that point. Yeah. So that becomes an ironic statement. <laughs> and in the movie, it's straight out. Yeah. It's, it's The irony's gone. And that's what I mean. He kind of... He irons out all the sort of complications (laughs) and makes it a much simpler sort of doomed romance as opposed to a sort of book about people being dishonest with themselves and with each other and with the result that nobody ends happily ever after. Now, because Gatsby and his efforts to try and win Daisy over seems to have this plan where he invites, well... Only a very small select number of people to his house for parties, but <laughs> word gets around and just it seems like everyone appears at these things, and he's hoping that she is going to just turn up one day. Yeah, but it, which is I think is so fascinating is that mm. you know his yeah he throws these giant parties. He only ever invites one person, which is Nick. Yeah, because yeah, Nick never because Nick is not the kind to just show up at the house, unlike ever, mm-hmm. everyone else in New York apparently. Um. <laughs> And Daisy can't doesn't go to the parties because it's unclear why Daisy and Tom never have gone over to uh, Gatsby's house. They don't even haven't heard of Gatsby, even though Jordan has, which is very strange that you find out at the beginning. Um, but you know, he doesn't write Daisy a letter. He doesn't do any of the. It's it's almost like Gatsby's determined to set himself up and then make Daisy come to him. He is not going. You know, he's not willing to say, hey, Daisy, I made good. Here I am now. He wants he wants her to discover him somehow. And I, I kind of love that odds. It's not odd. It's kind of, I think, understandable, very selfish streak to his love for Daisy that pops mm-hmm. up again and again. And I think it's first hinted at there that he throws these parties, assuming Daisy will at some point just wander in the door. And it takes him a long time to realize he's going to have to take some action <laughs> if he ever wants to see her again. <laughs> Aside from just sitting there and being glamorous and waiting for her to show up, and there's a a scene which kind of sets up the the chain of events, uh, which is in the book and in the film, where um, Nick gets invited to dinner at uh, Tom and Daisy's house, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a phone call partway through dinner, and Tom has to get up to take the call, and it gets very awkward there's a sort of tense silence and you can see that daisy's not happy the next thing you see she storms off and they have a bit of a row to which they both want to try and listen in (laughs) Uh, and it becomes apparent that tom's having an affair which kind of pushes the story along a bit more opening up the possibility you know if he's being unfaithful gives you that little bit of hope that maybe something will happen for Daisy to give her a happy ending but it's a lot more complex than that it is and I, th- I think I think you do hit in a, 
the nail on the head there in a funny way. It's like the introduction so early. It's it's chapter mm. one or two. I forget yeah. exactly. Um, must be chapter one because chapter three is the party. Chapter two is the afternoon with Myrtle. So it must mm-hmm. be chapter one, the, the dinner. Um, of only nine chapters, it's very formally structured. Yeah. Um, he, you know, Fitzgerald kind of, and the movie, which follows it essentially beat for beat in this area, is presents Daisy fairly sympathetically at first. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom going on this racist thing and Daisy kind of bemused me, but clearly disapprovingly talks to Nick about it on the side and says, yeah. you know, he's become very serious and he's reading these big, important books and kind of saying that he's an idiot. And we both kind of know that he's an idiot. <laughs> um, and then we find out Tom's cheating and that Daisy's genuinely hurt by it and isn't sort of, you know, she has a speech about how she's seen so many things. And they did cut one line that's in the book that's very famous where she says, God, I've become sophisticated. Which is a wonderful sort of way of Daisy just saying, I've seen too much in a way. Yeah. Even though she's only 22 mm-hmm. years old, which, God, that's young. Yeah. Um, and poor Nick kind of gets swept along in this whole story, doesn't he? Because he ends up uh, going into New York with Tom one day and then they suddenly jump off the train. Yeah. At this kind of pretty grim looking place in between Long Island and New York. Yeah, the Valley of Ashes, as it's called. Mm-hmm. Which, essentially, it's Queens. Essentially, it's what it is. It's <laughs> at the, the tip of Long Island before you cross over to Manhattan. It's essentially Queens now. It's not like that now. Now there's, like, an airport. But at the, mm-hmm. at the time, it was kind of, like, where all the used coal and everything that powered everything kind of got sent. And it's 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 interesting because he describes it very starkly in the book. Yeah. But... Lerman goes way over the top, I thought, with how <laughs> action and terrible this area is and just how, how really terrible. And it, it looks like something positively Dickensian the way he does it in the film. Um, but they do. They jump off the train and meet Tom's mistress, Myrtle. And the fact that Tom, who went to college with Nick but was never super close with Nick because they're very different kind of people. And Nick is Daisy's cousin, second cousin is more than willing to say, hey, I want you to meet my girlfriend. Just shows how little Tom cares about certain social niceties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like <laughs> keeping your mistress secret. <laughs> you know, he just doesn't care much. He wants to show her off. Thinking, I think, that Nick will be impressed. I think he wants to improve, to, uh, to impress Nick with how manly he is by how womanly and vivacious Myrtle Wilson is. Mm-hmm. Myrtle, who's married to a local garage attendant who keeps wanting to buy Tom's old car. Yeah. And it's just a very, he's a sad sack. He's such a sad sack. Um, but a very religious sad sack, which is an interesting twist. Um, and they go and they grab Myrtle and they go into the city for the day. And Myrtle calls her sister over and some neighbors because, of course, there's an apartment on, I think, Central Park West, but in a fairly nice neighborhood mm-hmm. that Tom keeps for Myrtle for these sort of afternoons. And they have this completely raucous party that in the movie is unbelievably raucous. Because <laughs> yeah. everything that's big in the book is huge in the movie, is how he tends to do it. And so it's uh, and it's a very strange sequence because it's just sort of, why are we spending so much time with these really terrible people? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's actually, I think, one of the times where well, I think it's undeniably over the top in the movie. Mm-hmm. It fundamentally gets at what the feeling of that afternoon must have been like. Yeah. Where it's just sort of booze everywhere and loudness and 
tempers flaring and in the end Tom slaps Myrtle and you know like breaks her nose or something and she's yeah. and there's blood everywhere and at that point Nick and like the guy who lives next door who's a photographer kind of sneak out and possibly have sex it's a bit vague um wow that went right over my head well the thing is it's not in it's not in the movie they they kind of tweak it in the movie so that nick at some point just passes up and then wakes up at home yeah which in the book he clearly says there's an there's there is a point where he's not telling us what happened and then he says at that point i left and i went i got the 4 a.m train so and he, we know how he gets home in the book, whereas in the book it's sort of, uh, yeah, it's sort of vague because he open to interpretation. This, it's open to interpretation. Yeah, there's certainly a moment where he and this man leave the party. They go to the man's apartment. There's a joke about pulling the lever on the elevator, which is rather suggestive. And then <laughs> there's an ellipsis, and the next thing you know, we kind of fade back in, as it were. Yeah. And this man is in his underwear, lying in bed, showing Nick pictures. And Nick is, like, getting dressed and getting ready to leave. Maybe they just took a nap together. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> um, but it seems that... But it's a very... It's a weird, hedonistic, sort of anything-goes sort of afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, in a terrible way, and I don't like this phrase, but it's, I think the best way to describe it, it's an example of Tom, the super-rich guy slumming it with the poor people mm. Mm. Um, and how do you feel the, the casting went with the film do you think they chose well I think by and large they did for the vision of Gatsby that Lerman wanted to make mm-hmm. I think uh, I think the casting of Tobey Maguire as Nick is not necessarily true to the book but it's true to the vision of the book that Lerman had Mm-hmm. As a sort of fairly Nick, as a sort of fairly wide-eyed, innocent, yeah, young man, which he's just decidedly not in the book at all. He's much more worldly in the book than they allow him to be in the film. Um, like he fought in the Great War. Yeah, we can't. You know, Tobey Maguire does not look like a World War One veteran. No, you know, he did, he just never believed that he was in the trenches, but Nick was. Um, he's a bit hard in some ways. Um, but for the sort of softer version, he's quite good. I thought Joel Edgerton, who played uh, Tom, was possibly yeah. the best casting mm. because there's something undeniably masculine and attractive about him, but at the same time, he's kind of repulsive in the role. Yeah, You don't want to be around him. And his sort of swagger is really unsettling. <laughs> Um, and then you have the kind of two at the center where you have Daisy and you have Gatsby himself Um, and Gatsby is always something of a cipher in a large way and so is Daisy to varying degrees and you kind of have to fill in what you think their motivations are sometimes and I don't think probably anyone in Hollywood could quite pull that off as well as Leonardo DiCaprio who he does a pretty decent job I have to say he really does I don't I don't agree with all the choices the director and the screenwriter made, but um, but Leonardo DiCaprio is fundamentally a weirdly like at this stage in his career, you're just so used to seeing him that you kind of don't yeah. quite ever believe him as anything. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's very earnest and genuine, and so there's this weird tension with him that 
you never quite believe anything he's saying, but you go along with it anyway, which is 100% perfect for Gatsby. You know, Nick is constantly trying to suss out what of the crazy stories Gatsby's telling him is true and what is completely made up nonsense. And Leo kind of sells that very well. Where He's definitely got the um, that sort of personality that draws people in. And I think that's yeah quite a, a key thing with the, the Gatsby character. It is, which, which the director does a very over-the-top job of introducing the Gatsby character um, in a sort of hero, old-timey movie moment <laughs> with the crescendo of Rhapsody in Blue. And it's way bigger than it is in the book but it well if you're going to set a film in the 20s in new york you've got to have a bit, uh, <laughs> i don't know it's as a woody allen fan i'm just you know that move that music is always going to be the opening of manhattan and i'm sorry you can't use it for anything else <laughs> <laughs> um and there are some very interesting musical choices in this film there were there really really were um that that one being one of the few I really enjoyed. Everything else just kind of either faded into the background or didn't quite work for me. Um, this thing that he does of using modern music, you know, as if it were popular at the time. Yeah. It, it just doesn't quite work for me. It's a little bit me. hit and miss. It is very hit or miss. And sometimes it almost felt borderline offensive in some weird way. Um in the same way that, I don't know, because it feels, I don't, it's, very, it's very strange for me to describe exactly why it never quite feels right to see a room full of a bunch of white people dancing to hip-hop, but it never quite does. <laughs> it always feels a bit like we've sort of taken an oppressed minority's cultural legacy and made it our own yeah, so we no, can I dance agree. to it. And it's it's a bit unsettling sometimes. That mm-hmm. saying, I will dance to Jay-Z anytime, anyplace. So, you know, <laughs> who am I to judge? Um, but and then of course there's Carrie Mulligan um, mm-hmm. doing a very commendable American accent um, who you know Oscar nominated Carrie Mulligan British actress who is also in Doctor Who of course yes uh, Sally Sparrow yeah Sally Sparrow who um, is an interesting take on Daisy um, Daisy, Daisy and Gatsby's relationship, even Fitzgerald admitted, is sort of not fully flushed out. You have to read into it why they love each other or if they actually do love each other. I tend to think they don't actually love each other, really, but that they think they do. Um, but that's me. <laughs> um, she, but she brings a sort of... This Daisy is not dumb, and no one could ever accuse her of being dumb. Whereas some daisies or some interpretation of Daisy, I think, do come off a bit stupid. And whereas I think this Daisy, uh, Carrie Mulligan's interpretation is she's aware of how ridiculous her life is in some ways. And she's aware of how much of an object as opposed to a subject her, her husband and society at large see her as. You can uh, see her dilemma because she's obviously in this marriage, which is not everything it could be and then she's got this opportunity with someone she had affection for years ago Mm -hmm. and that seems a little bit iffy as well so you can see her sort of she's kind of very undecided on it and it's obviously it causes some pretty major problems later in the story yeah and her her dilemma is it's it's very interesting because it's 
she is willing, or at least she says she is, and I, I'm a client believer, she's willing to run away with Gatsby. Mm-hmm. Just take his money and they can deal with Tom from France or, you know, they can just deal with it. Yeah. Kind of in her normal, I'm a rich girl, I'll figure it out later kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gatsby's super wealthy, so why not? But Gatsby demands to essentially, for her to... Yeah, that's not enough for him, is it? He's it's not enough, no. He's got to see her tell her husband that she never loved him. That she never loved him, and they have to go back to Louisville, Kentucky, which is where she's from, and get married from her parents' house and have it as if, it, as if this whole past five years just never happened. And in a way, that's, you know, that's obviously Gatsby trying to recreate the past, which in a famous line from the novel, he says, of course you can recreate the past. And Nick's like, um, no, totally you can't. Um, but it's also him not allowing Daisy to be a full person. Mm-hmm. You know, the past five years, just as much as they happened for him and he learned and grew and became a different person, so has Daisy. You know, she has had a child, if nothing else, in yeah. the intervening period and has been married to this man and has done all this stuff and seen all these things. And Gatsby making her essentially trying to renounce that entire life is trying to make her in some way renounce her own personhood and say, you're not entitled to have had these feelings you have to have only done, been this perfect ideal object. And she's like, I can never do that. And she said, I love you now. Isn't that enough? And it's not for Gatsby. It's just not. Which is really stupid of him. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so through uh, coincidence, not not a lot of coincidence, but... um, Gatsby induces Nick to help him via Jordan (laughs) uh, get close to Daisy. And there's a wonderful scene that's maybe my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah. um, Is the scene where Nick invites Gatsby and Daisy both over for tea. Um, And of course, again, Lerman makes it much bigger than it is in the book because that's Mm -hmm. what he does all the time. But he gets the fundamentals right, I think, which is that... You know, Gatsby essentially takes control of Nick's space in some way and his little cut and tries to make it perfect as opposed to just allowing it to be what it actually is. Yeah. Because he thinks that's going to impress Daisy because he's stupid. Uh, <laughs> and Daisy doesn't know why she's being asked to tea and can't bring her husband, but she shows up. And it's raining, which I love the fact that it's raining during that yeah. scene. That it's this, it's this rainy, miserable summer day that they kind of rekindle this romance. Um, But they do. Essentially, as soon as they see each other, Daisy and Gatsby, within a few moments after a few uh, half-starts from Gatsby, because he's a terrified, nervous person, which I like, and Leonardo DiCaprio sold that very well, I thought. The business with the clock, I thought, was great. Business with the clock, which is just such a wonderful little, like, painfully obvious small talk (laughs) sort of thing in the book. It's just handled really nicely. And him, like, leaving the house and walking around in the rain so he can come back in as if... Yeah. So it didn't look like he'd been waiting for Daisy, which, in fact, he'd been waiting for Daisy. That was also handled very well. Um, and this is actually... Several reviews that I read before I saw the film, and I kind of agree with them, all said, if you can make it to the first giant party scene at Gatsby's to the point where the movie settles down, which is about yeah. now, then you're good to go. Like, if the movie loses you during before this happens, it's never going to get you back. But if you can hang on (laughs) Mm -hmm. through all the crazy excess of that giant party scene and that afternoon party at Myrtle's apartment, then you'll be fine. 
and you might even start the warm of the movie, which is exactly what happened to me. And essentially, I held on through the excess of the party scene and found myself being charmed by the tea scene, which is what's supposed to happen. Um, and they go and they rekindle this romance, and Nick is there partly because we need the narrator to be around. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a slight structural problem in the movie that Nick is there for a lot of stuff that he doesn't need to be there for. Um, but it also kind of, I think, allows Daisy and Gatsby to kind of pretend like they're not having an affair. Yeah. It allows them to pretend that they're just talking and they're just friends. You know, Nick was there the entire time. Nothing inappropriate happened. And so... In the book, what is a lovely afternoon of tea and then a tour of Gatsby's house becomes a fairly amusing romantic comedy style montage almost in the movie, <laughs> where it seems like the longest afternoon in human history and they do everything. And one day yeah. <laughs> they go sunbathing and they take his motorboat out and they, and then they do a tour of Gatsby's giant mansion, um, which includes probably the one scene that everyone who's ever read the book remembers, um, which is Gatsby... Um, showing Daisy all of the shirts that he has sent mm-hmm. over for him by yeah. a man in London. And Daisy starts crying. And in the book, it's simply that she starts crying. And then she says, you know, and then she starts laughing. She's like, I've just never seen such beautiful shirts. Or she's laughing and then crying, but she says, I've just never yeah. seen such beautiful shirts. And it's left to the reader to figure out exactly why she's crying. Like, it's implied, I think, that she's laughing, yeah. crying because, you know, She's through, through Toby McGuire's narration, it's, there's no doubt left. Oh, yeah, no. Whereas in the film, it is very clear how you're meant to read this, and you're meant to read it as her regretting all the time not spent with Gatsby, all the hours, all the days, you know. Whereas I think it's actually much more interesting to kind of think about it in other ways. It's, yeah, it would have worked better without it, I think. I think so, too, because, you know, my own personal reading is that she's crying, at least partially, because here is Gatsby throwing her all these possessions mm-hmm. all these shirts as like evidence of his wealth and she's kind of crying at least maybe because she realizes for the first time in her life how meaningless these things are and that this was the stuff that she married tom because he had and gatsby did yeah. or maybe it's even she's crying partially because already at that moment she knows that gatsby doesn't get it mm-hmm. the fact that he's showing off and ostentatious with his wealth by throwing all the shirts means that he doesn't understand what it means to be wealthy. Yeah. To understand and that he never he's never going to get it. And in the end, he never does get it. And that's his problem, is he's never going to be old money. He's always going to be nouveau riche and not quite understand and say the wrong thing. Um, which, you know, I think all of those are valid interpretations. And maybe it's all of those at once, whereas in the movie, it's very clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not left to any doubt. No. I mean, there have been quite a number of different adaptations of the novel is there one that you felt worked best or yeah, funnily is it enough, difficult to pick one I, I think this actually works best mm-hmm. um earlier versions uh, there's the first version from 1926 is completely lost essentially um mm-hmm. like a lot of very old movies are there's one from the 40s late 40s um uh, that is available on, in its entirety on youtube okay. that is absolutely dreadful <laughs> That is just absolutely terrible. It, it, and I don't know if it's because it was made during the era of the Hayes Code, which I'm sure people know about, like yeah. sort of, you know. And so Gatsby is set up to be much more sort of dark and much more sort of, of a wise guy than he is in the book. So that 
when he gets killed at the end, it feels justified, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As opposed to just sad and unsettling. And so there's actually a scene where it's like him and his henchmen drive out to West Egg to look at houses. And it's like, oh, good God, no, no, just no. And very, and it, like a long litany of all the crimes Gatsby's been involved in. Whereas in the book, it's always, you know, even when you're told, you still kind of don't think Gatsby's actually that bad of a person. Um, no, that's true. It's, he's quite a, a complex character and there's so many rumors about him before you even really get to, to meet him on the page. You know, there's, there's talk of him being a spy during the war and things like that. Mm. Which all really comes to nothing. Which all really comes to nothing. And it's interesting. It's the stuff about the war in particular mm. that when Gatsby's describing, like, his valor during the war to Nick, I still don't know if that's true. I'm mm. not sure if Fitzgerald knows if it's true. Yeah. You know, like the, the medal from Montenegro that Gatsby has mm-hmm. that is, like, a big moment in the book and... In, and in the movie as well, it's like that he carries around with him for whatever reason. Is this sort of like a thing he had made? Like Nick thinks maybe, maybe or maybe he well, did. He comes out with this backstory that he tells Nick. He says, "I, I want to tell you, I'm not just some schmo. Yeah, this is this is who I am. This is my background." And then at the end, or towards the end, he comes clean and says, "Well, actually, this is who I really am." Mm-hmm. So yeah, you are left wondering. What's true, what's not. And then in the book, at least, we have the final reveal, which is his father shows up. Yeah. And we find out who he really, really was, which is completely mm. removed from the film. Yeah. Which is completely removed from the film, which is very upsetting, actually, in some ways, because mm. it's one of the most wonderful scenes and complicated in the book. Is His father shows up, and we really get a sense of who he was as a kid, as a young person, before he became Gats, because his real name was James Gats. Yeah. Um, and some, you know, a Lutheran from Minnesota or something, and he made himself this wonderful sort of figure. Um, but I still don't know if the story he... I know, like, I know his explanation of being an Oxford is probably right. Does that mean he did have some meritorious service? I mean, he seems like a fairly brave kind of guy. Mm. I could believe the character we see being a war hero, a legitimate war hero. Maybe? I don't know. Did he actually get a medal from Montenegro? Possibly. <laughs> I just... <laughs> I, I don't know, and I kind of love that about it, that even reading it half a dozen times over 15 years and seeing multiple movie versions of it, I still don't know. Um, and that's the thing that none of the film versions quite capture is the layers and the nuance. Mm-hmm. The Robert Redford version, which I finally forced myself to watch most of in preparation for this, it's as bad as you've heard. Um <laughs> Largely due to some weird casting choices, and also just it's it's lifeless. Mm. And the one thing Gatsby shouldn't be is lifeless. It shouldn't feel dead. It should feel very much alive, like Myrtle, you know, vivacious and alive. Yeah. And uh, if Lerman errs too much on the side of the vivacity, then I'm going to allow him that as opposed to fault him for that because a dead Gatsby is there's just no point. <laughs> You definitely get a good impression of the whole decadence of the period. You definitely do. You definitely do. And how... um, And you do definitely get a sense of how little it matters to Daisy and Tom and how much it matters to Gatsby. Yeah. Um, The movie kind of elides over how much or how little it matters to Nick. Um, I think it matters actually very little to him in the end, all this stuff, which is why he ends up moving back to the Midwest at the end after the whole affair with Gatsby ends. 
but Daisy and Tom fundamentally they're so used to it mm-hmm. they just they, they just don't care they just don't care you know and Tom didn't fight in the war um, no you know it was never affected by that and it's not like World War Two World War One was very much sort of a thing that happened over there in this country and only a mm-hmm. small number of, of men went to comparatively speaking so it's very easy for someone like Tom not to have served you know doesn't have this sort of formative experience was a golden boy at Yale for his athletic achievements and then kind of was just super rich and married Daisy and they had a kid and now he has a mistress and life is just sort of whatever Tom wants it to be mm-hmm. um, and so the idea of having nothing means nothing to him <laughs> it's an empty concept he just doesn't get it um, it struck me a little bit it was kind of similar not entirely to something like the talented Mr. Ripley where you've got a character who's so desperate to be accepted uh, by a peer group who are yes. you know, more wealthy and you're trying to be something you're not and it just ends up backfiring yeah, I, I, you know, I've never made that connection before, at least logically, and that is, I'm, that's one hundred percent right. I think, I think, what Highsmith is doing with uh, telling Mister Ripley and that is sort of like, what if Gatsby were just full on evil <laughs> or full on sociopath? Yeah. What if he just didn't care about hurting other people? Then that's what he would do. He wouldn't just, you know, try to be like Tom. He would kill Tom and pretend to be Tom, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or he would make he would properly kill anybody who might be able to divulge the secret because he wouldn't. Yeah. He wouldn't care. Um, and I think that's exactly right. I think Ripley is a sort of dark, evil, twisted version of Gatsby. And it's this American both fear of and respect for and disdain for and hatred toward the self-made man. Mm-hmm. And the suspicion that they probably cheated or did something wrong along the way, our sort of envy of and our hatred of inherited wealth. Um, all these things kind of keep permutating and Gatsby is kind of like the first and best permutation of them in some ways, but telling Mr. Ripley is a later and darker permutation of really the same ingredients to some extent mm-hmm. with this sort of homoeroticism level kicked up a notch or two. Um, because there's a weirdness between Nick and Gatsby in the book that's even stronger in the movie, but it's never quite spoken of out loud. Mm. how big of a house you can have like yeah. I think the most commonly used word uh, in the book is house it's a it's weird apart it's, from sport apart, oh my god <laughs> Gatsby's Gatsby's habit of calling everyone old sport which is never explained in the book but is explained away in the movie as something he picked up from the drunken yachtsman that he mm-hmm. saved one day who taught him how to be a gentleman essentially yeah um, very poorly I would say if he taught him to call everyone old sport <laughs> um it is just a habit of speech that he picks up in the book that you don't know where it comes from. In the movie, they do explain it. But it is almost every other line, yeah. Gatsby utters, he calls him an old sport, which shows how, in a way, it shows how artificial it is. Yeah, It's like no one ever uses that much repetitive language unless you're doing it deliberately. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, like at, some point, at some point, he trained himself to call him an old sport, and now it's just so ingrained that he can't not do it even when it seems highly inappropriate. <laughs> and even Tom picks him up on it. Yes, which is, which is wonderful. I love. Yeah. I, I thought that was a great touch, which is, I don't think actually in the book, although if it is, it, it I, is. might be right. It is? Okay. It is, yeah. Yeah. And this is and it's one of the wonderful things about this book is every time I read it, I find things I missed the last time around. Yeah. 
it took me like four readings to pick up on the possible gay sex scene. Um, and it wasn't until this time through after a friend pointed out to me that I really noticed the scene with the butler pressing the button on the machine to squeeze all the oranges to make all the orange right. juice, which is just a wonderful little like three sentence thing that's tossed yeah. in about this very fancy machine that could squeeze 200 oranges in half an hour. Um, if a butler pushed a button 200 times in a half an hour, essentially. <laughs> and it's this, this, excess, this excess that's described occasionally um, is, I thought, is, I think, lovely. Um, but it is, the book is kind of, the words that often come are crystalline and jewel-like. Because, and the thing we haven't talked about yet, and the thing that the movie kind of doesn't quite know how to deal with, and so it tries various methods, is the language of the book. Yeah, the way he describes the way that the uh, people enter the house, it's kind of, I don't know, it's quite descriptive. kind of struck me as uh, rather like sort of water crashing onto a beach and that sort of ebb and flow. And he's just got a really interesting way of uh, describing the situation as it unfolds. Yeah. No, he does. It's, 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 it's almost like a tone poem. He's so... Yeah. He's so flexible, Fitzgerald is so flexible with how he uses the language. Um, and occasionally he allows the characters to say something that sound impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, the most famous one, which is something that's actually cut from the movie, is that um, Nick, Tom says, uh, I'm sorry, Gatsby says to Nick that Daisy has a voice full of money, that her voice is full of money. Mm-hmm. I, what do they, I don't even know what that means, but you can <laughs> hear it. Yeah, you can hear it in your head what that would sound yeah. like, but if you could try to, you couldn't articulate what that meant. And it's that sort of flexibility with the language that mm. a poet has, and really good novelists have, and that Fitzgerald has, and is all through this. His like, use of imagery as well, the whole thing with the the billboard with the, um, the pair of eyes staring out. Yeah, which which is the other the uh, the doctor the eyes of Doctor T J Eckelberg. Mm-hmm. which overlook the Valley of Ashes and are yeah. meant to sort of, well, if you believe high school English class, I represent like the eyes of God and the fact that no one, mm-hmm. no one's deeds go unseen. Um, but what I think is so interesting about that is I think that's a fundamental misreading of that image Okay. in some ways. And, and let me prevent my briefcase is that billboards introduced as having been kind of old and decayed. Yeah. It's not new anymore. It's mm-hmm. old and it was put up at some point in the past for some by some forgotten oculist who's had an office in Brooklyn or something. You know, nobody knows anymore, but it's just kind of still there. It's this vestige. And so it's these eyes are a vestige of a system we used to have where we believed that bad people got punished mm-hmm. and that God was watching it all. Because when you think about it, what God, you know, what the eyes see is um, after a very bad afternoon at the Plaza Hotel, Daisy is driving mm-hmm. uh, a car that Myrtle thinks belongs to Tom. Myrtle runs up in the street. Uh, and Daisy, even though Gatsby tries to prevent it from happening, Daisy hits and kills Myrtle Wilson, Tom's mistress, in a mm-hmm. fortuitous series of events. Um, this causes George Wilson, Myrtle's husband, um, with a movie, some prodding from Tom, which is not in the book. No. To find it, it gets mentioned at the very end, in as much as he kind of suggests because he sees Tom in the street, doesn't he? 
Yeah, there's a, there's a much subtler in the book about yeah, how yeah. much Tom, where this but Tom this, was this heavily is... involved in saying Gatsby was having an affair with your wife and you should go and kill mm-hmm. him because he ran her down. Yeah. And so George goes and he kills Gatsby um, while he's floating in his pool on a little life preserver thing. And then he kills himself. And it's sort of, okay, so if the eyes of God are watching all this, then why is it all that people who never did anything wrong to anybody, or relatively speaking, are the ones who get killed? Yeah. Daisy's the one who kills somebody mm-hmm. by driving recklessly. Yeah. She and Tom swan off at the end. You know, they go, they go back to hide behind their carelessness. And I think it's a fundamentally moral book in the sense that we're meant to judge these people, but... At the same time, it's not pretending that God is going to swoop in and fix everything. Mm. It's sort of this very 1920s, post-World War I, the old moral structures, the way we used to think about things, are a vestige, like this billboard. There's the a line I- that struck me at the end where um, Nick is talking to Jordan and they'd had a conversation previously about her being a bad driver. Yes, yeah, yeah that's, that's a great passage that because they cut most of that relationship is missing from the movie. Yeah. Where they talk earlier and she says, well, you, you know, I can be a bad driver as long as no one else is a bad driver. And, and he says, well, what if you meet another bad driver? Yeah. And in the end, she says, well, looks like I did. Yeah, because she accuses Nick of having been a bad driver. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I don't know how I feel about that. It's, it's an interesting... It's an interesting and fairly complicated relationship Jordan and Nick have in that Nick is constantly saying that he's a good person. Um, He says that he suspects himself of being fundamentally honest, that he doesn't judge people. Like all these things that kind of he tells us outright as the narrator that kind of encourage us to believe him more. Yeah. But then he tells us that Jordan thinks he's a bad driver, metaphorically speaking, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's like... Is there something he his he's not telling us about how he and Jordan conducted the affair that they had? Mm-hmm. You know, we do know that he has a girl back home of some kind that he's writing yeah. he's writing letters to, saying that he loves her when he doesn't, mm-hmm. and that he has to, that he feels like because everyone thinks he's going to get engaged to her, but he has no intention of doing so. So there's a little bit of dishonesty, at least in his character, it seems. Um. But how much is always the kind of giant question when you read The Great Gatsby is everything is filtered through Nick's eyes. Mm-hmm. How much do you believe? Is he um, a reliable narrator? Is he Yeah. And he's like the one, he's the standard example in American like English classes of like an unreliable narrator is Nick Carraway in The Great Gatsby. Him and uh, Holden Caulfield from Captain yeah. the Rye. Um, and the movie goes even one step further with this <laughs> by adding... <laughs> The thing that I hated the most about the movie, and I really wish they had just not done it. I understand why they did it, but they add this framing device. Where after the affair in New York, Nick has gone back to the Midwest and essentially has become a morbid alcoholic and depressive and suicidal. And he's in an asylum, and his therapist encourages him to write down the story of what it is that's bothering him and to get it out. and And so essentially, Nick becomes Fitzgerald, who was, in fact, an alcoholic and had a lot of psychological issues during his time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ends up writing the novel the, or the book, The Great Gatsby, that he even titled at the end. Yeah, yeah. You see him uh, mm. writing the title page, this is Gatsby, and then he adds above it, The Great, which is, which is, <laughs> just, which is just sort of like silly. Uh, um, it was, I thought it was just unnecessary. 
I did too. I know why. I, I really know why they did it is because I think moviegoers have gotten to the point where we don't buy a lot of voiceover narration unless there's a justification for it. Yeah. So this was their justification for it. And you cannot, so much of what makes this movie, or so much of what makes the Gatsby story sit in our memories the way it does, as this kind of like cultural touchstone, is not what happens. It's how Nick describes what happens and what is said about what happens. It is the idea of the boats being born ceaselessly back into the past, which that's not said by a character. That's the last line that's said by Nick, the narrator, directly to the reader. And so if you're going to get the language in there, you got to figure out some way. And I, mm-hmm. this was their way. I would have liked to have seen maybe, a, I don't know, some other way of doing it. Um, but, you know, I'm not a screenwriter. But it felt ham-fisted. Yeah. It also, it also, I think, put Nick too firmly in the side of being on Gatsby's side in the whole story. Yeah kind of the side of the poor, as opposed to what's actually there, which is Nick is kind of on the side of the rich. Um, and there's, there's like one sentence that always gets me that the movie just ignored because they didn't want to, um, they didn't want to deal with it, I guess mm-hmm. is, and it's a, it's a big moment and it's in the movie. Um, they go at great lengths in the movie to talk about what well, he, constantly refers to himself as a writer yeah which is not really in the book and like tom's calling him shakespeare and things like that yeah he was the writer and tom was the athlete um but i found the passage i was thinking of and it's this moment the last time nick sees gatsby um the ninth century gatsby tells him his truth about his past and Mm -hmm. you know the thing about the the drunken yachtsman saving him and then renaming himself james you know jay gatsby and going off to war and loving daisy and all these things Mm-hmm. and getting into bootlegging and a little bit of bond sales. Um, after all this night, kind of waiting for Daisy to come after Gatsby has helped cover up the fact that Daisy killed someone uh, and Daisy doesn't call and Daisy isn't yeah. going to and Nick knows this. Um, Nick goes away. Um, and this is Nick speaking. We shook hands and I started away. Just before I reached the hedge, I remembered something and turned around. They're a rotten crowd, I shouted across the lawn. You're with the whole damn bunch put together. And, uh, and it says, I've always been glad that I said that. It was the only compliment I ever gave him because I disapproved of him from beginning to end. And that's the thing is they, the movie made sure to add that line mm. and to add Nick saying, I was happy I did that because I never complimented before. But the book says flat out, I was happy I did it and I'd never given a compliment before because I disapproved of him. Mm. The entire time I knew him, as I never approved of what he was doing or who he was, and I thought that's that's a layer of depth <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to this character and his relationship to this nouveau riche guy. That fundamentally he still disproves of him. That the movie just erases. Um, that is why I'll never be able to just say, "Skip the book, watch the movie." I, I, just, I just can't do that because it's just. I think it just misreads the novel yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> I'm really glad you chose it because I've really enjoyed reading it. Um, I found it something that I couldn't really put down. Once I once I got going, that was it. I was just glued to it. Very, it's, very uh, yeah. beautifully written. And thankfully for me, with my really appalling uh, ability to 
sort of tune out and go off and do something else. It just kept my interest. It is surprisingly engaging for something that's written in a very, some would say, florid style mm-hmm. and has surprisingly little actual narrative momentum. Um, you know, you're halfway through the book before Daisy and Gatsby even meet. Mm-hmm. And then they only have a very brief affair before everything kind of comes to this head in this terrible incident at the Plaza Hotel where they all kind of get drunk together on a hot day and just, and Nick and Gatsby have a, uh, sorry, uh, Tom and Gatsby have a fight about Daisy and Daisy essentially admits that she can never love Gatsby the way he wants her to. And then they kill Myrtle <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and George kills Daisy or George kills Gatsby and kills himself. And then the rich people go off and live their rich lives. Um, and that's all that happened, you know. That's uh, that's the whole book. The even read aloud, there was a very popular theatrical production called Gats, hmm. that was just a sort of staged reading okay. of the entire novel. Even it read aloud and kind of with some action thrown in, only lasted about six and a half hours, which is yes, a long time to be at the theater. But it means that if you've never read this, you can probably read it in a well. I can read it in an evening, two or three evenings tops. You've got this book done. Like it is short, it is compact, it has an amazing amount of detail and richness to the language, but at the same time never makes you feel like you're slogging through. Mm. Yeah, I mean, even though it's a relatively short book, mm-hmm. there's a lot of detail in there, and you really invest in the characters. What did you... So, since this is your first time reading it, I'd be very curious, because it's been so long since I read it for the first time. <laughs> did you... Who did you like? Who did you quote unquote root for in the book? Who did you want to see turn out well? Um, I kind of felt Nick was probably the most sympathetic character, as you say, because it's told from his standpoint. You wonder how much of that is filtered through his perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you said before, Jordan's a fantastic character. She's not the most likable character, but. There's some great beats in there, some great story beats and some great moments. Yeah. So they're all interesting characters, but yeah, certainly, um, you know, I I felt for Gatsby, even though, you know, as it turns out in the end, he's done some pretty dodgy stuff to get to where he is. You know, he's just desperately in love and completely misguided and... So he's, he's, he's a sympathetic character, but, uh, I mean, what were your, how do you see it when, in your reading of the book? The older I get, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's funny, it's a lot like, you know, the Baz Luhrmann movies that everyone has seen tend to be the Romeo and Juliet he did mm-hmm. with Claridine and Selena DiCaprio, surprisingly enough, yeah. um, and Moulin Rouge, mm-hmm. which are both kind of doomed, tragic love stories. And that's what he turns Gatsby into. And um, he turns it into this sort of, which is one way of reading it, but it's, and it's kind of maybe how I read it when I first read it when I was young. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm older, and even though Gatsby is 32 during the course of the book, which is really, he should know better. Um, and now that I'm, you know, in my mid-30s myself, I kind of look at it and I'm just sort of, you're all terrible people. Like, even Nick is kind of awful sometimes. Mm. And Tom and Daisy are really awful people. Yeah. Um, and Jordan is 
charming but awful. He, she reminds me actually a lot in a way of um, the Crawfords from Jane Austen's Banfield Park, which is a whole other kettle of fish. Uh, but where they're kind of surfacely charming, and you suspect there might be good deep down in there somewhere, but at the same time, they're kind of awful. Um, and Nick is... Nick is both evidently a good person and evidently a bad person, and I just don't trust him because he tells me to trust him too many times. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes this very dark fantasy about the shallowness of appearances and the shallowness of wealth. But it, it leaves me very, it leaves me very melancholic. I think in a way it's a novel about the loss of innocence and about the fact that at some point, you know, this stuff might have been true. Um, at, at one point love might have been real. And at one point, you know, goodness might have mattered in the past and it just doesn't now it's you know in the world that they're living in it's just all kind of gone to hell everything's just gone to hell um and it's kind of you know the world has become sophisticated just like daisy has and you look around and there's just no one's a good person like in this book no one is someone i would hold up as like an exemplar of the kind of person you should want to be which is fine it's not it's not damning at all um, but they're all still engaging and interesting. But Gatsby kind of feels like an idiot to me who is so focused on an impossible goal that he does a lot of really bad things to kind of achieve it. Um, and so I can't really feel too bad for him, but at the same time, doesn't deserve to get shot while floating in a swimming pool. <laughs> and so it's, it's just sort of bad things, terrible things happening to bad people, and then some bad people get away with it because they have a lot of money mm-hmm. and because they have class, supposedly. And that's awful. And and I think it is I think it is about that sort of loss of that purity, which is why there's a scene, a memory scene that's not in the movie, that's in the book, that Nick tells about when he would go home from school. And he'd be taking the train back to, like, the upper Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'd be, like, snowy at Christmas time. And it'd be like, this, oh, this, yeah. was, this was my Midwest. And it's a very pristine, very, like, you know, Prairie Home Companion sort of, <laughs> you know, freshly fallen snow and good cheer and, uh, you know, Midwestern values. Yeah. Having been sort of this memory. And it's kind of just corrupted by his time in the East. It's like... Mm the way that Henry James novels um, send Americans to Europe to find out what decadence is like and to be corrupted by it. So Fitzgerald sends Midwesterners to the East Coast to find out what decadence is like and be corrupted by it. <laughs> so that people kind of move from left to right across the map, and as they do, they become sort of... It's just, that's just kind of how Western literature tends to operate. And this is the Fitzgerald version of it. And so... And that's kind of how I read it, is it's a beautifully written book about terrible things and awful people and sadness and despair um, that doesn't, that's not self-aware to know how sad it should be, except for a few brief moments here and there where they suddenly realize, hey, our lives are miserable, but then they go back to the party. And I, <laughs> sorry, it's a bit yeah. dark, isn't it? <laughs> Pretty much sums it up. <laughs> 
Now, if you're not completely depressed by our description of that, uh, <laughs> It's it's a great book. Um, if you have a, like an e-reader or an iPad or tablet device, um, because of the age of it, I know it works differently in different countries, but I think in the UK, because of the age of uh, the book, you can actually download it for free. That is or not just true. go to your local library. That is not true in this country, alas. Uh, copyright still extends uh, to Gatsby here. Um, mm. Mainly because I think there have been some shenanigans with copyright law in this country, but that's another story. Uh mm. But others of Fitzgerald's books, uh, including his earlier book, This Side of Paradise, which is lovely also, um, available for free. But Gatsby, you can get for, there are many, many different editions, and you can get for something affordable. Or every library will have multiple yeah. copies, probably, of it. Um, and it's been in print continuously since it was published in 1925. And my copy, I don't know why this, the, I don't even know where I got it, is from 1953. Um, and originally belonged to a Dr. James O. Trent in uh, Lexington Park, Maryland. Um, I seriously, I, I've had this so long. It's a hardback copy. I don't know when I got it or how I got it, but um, if you can get an old copy of Gatsby, it even feels better somehow <laughs> than it does. <laughs> it kind of it reminds you that this book has been read and thought about and affected people in this country at least for 80 years now. So if you're listening out there and you want your book back, just send your emails to... <laughs> if, you, if you lost your copy of Gatsby 50 years ago, 60 years ago, and went it back, yes, let me know. So, Eric, apart from immersing yourself in the world of Gatsby, yes. do you have anything else you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Uh, uh, um, well, if you haven't... Uh, this is a stupid thing to recommend. Um, if you haven't... Um, if you haven't been enjoying season 7B of Doctor Who, which is just wrapped up <laughs> last night, the finale, um, give it another shot. I would say that it's much better once, now that it's done, it all makes sense in a way. That in it context, when you can see it as a whole, yeah, yes. I think I would agree. I think, I think that's completely right. And, um, and I understand some people don't want their Doctor Who to be that way, and that's fine. Um, but I think if you were struggling with, I'm not sure why I'm seeing all these various plot threads and what's it all about, I think... I think, I think it's one of the problems of splitting the season over two years. I think that is definitely true. And, and I you think, can view them all, admittedly, yeah. in a weekly format. You can see that progression through the story and kind of join up the dots. Whereas if you're left hanging after six months and you've got another uh, batch of stories, it can feel a bit disjointed. Yeah. And especially when they push so hard for this sort of standalone feel episode to episode, but yet still have this continuing sort of... Um, thread. Mm -hmm. um, well, so I can certainly recommend a, uh, a Doctor Who podcast. In fact, I can recommend two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's what's been affectionately known now as DeWitwer. DeWitwer, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's Doctor Who The Writer's Room, which I host with Kyle Anderson, who mm -hmm. writes for The Nerdist. It's a uh, very, very good show. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, Stephen Chapansky of uh, Radio Fiscaro, who tends to uh, pronounce uh, acronyms as opposed to saying them uh, the way normally else did. Uh, he said it was Dwight Word, uh, modeled after uh, Midwit, Midwit. The, the minute Doctor Who podcast. That yeah. Was, or, yes. Um, so that is a monthly course, show. Yeah. And of course, the Doctor Who Book Club podcast. Yes, the Doctor Who Book Club podcast, which he does not call Dwoops. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, only a matter of time. Only a matter of time, probably. Yeah. 
and that you host, host with the lovely Sean, which I host with lovely Sean, who has been on here. Yeah, he was on fairly recently yes. talking about. Uh, I've forgotten what now. <laughs> American Horror Story. That's what it was. That's what it was. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He was American. very well behaved. He he is on the book club as well. Generally, I think yeah. people who haven't listened to him and only heard him on Tardis Tavern might assume that he comes in and, <laughs> and starts talking about foul things, and he just doesn't. He's he's a very smart and incisive reader, and um, is a really good critic of of structure and narrative and character, even though he would never call himself such, but he really is. Um, and we've been doing that for almost two and a half years now, um, and which were started in January of this year, twenty thirteen, and so. Um, we'll be recording episode no we released episode 5 which was on some Robert Holmes stories and we'll be yes. more of that later you um, had to sit through the pirate pl- um, the um, space pirates space pirates yes I, I did pirate planet for a minute <laughs> but uh, I'll probably never have to do it again so I'm quite pleased with that development <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I've, I've not had that pleasure yet but uh, it's I a pleasure you can easily myself. forego <laughs> My own personal recommendation um, is, well, it may not still be available at the time this actually goes out, but there's a really interesting uh, BBC Radio documentary about uh, Giorgio Moroder, who was a very influential figure in um, the uh, electronic um, music scene and uh, produced the likes of um, I Feel Love by Donna Summer. Great song. uh, Yeah still works today yeah and uh so yeah it's made me go back through my back catalogue and uh, check out some old electronic stuff and i think it's actually featured on the new daft punk album that comes out um this coming monday as we record which so, people uh, have been raving about already yeah yeah and you've got niall rogers involved in that as well so uh, that should be good so yeah that would be my recommendation i think the second part is due out this week as we as we record so it should be good well fantastic Thank you ever so much for coming back onto the show, Eric. Thank you so pleasure. much for having me, Mark. Thank you so much. And uh, maybe we'll have you back sometime soon. We'll make it a four-peat or whatever you would call it, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Eric. <laughs>